Welcome to Movie Maker. I'm Tim Malloy, and today our guest is Adam Leipzig, founder and CEO of the new film education platform, Media U. It's an alternative or a complement to film school, and if you're saying, no thanks, I don't care about film school alternatives, and I hate compliments, I would still humbly suggest sticking around, because this is a conversation where I learned a lot, not just about film, but life. Yes, actually about life. I'm not blowing smoke. I really did think a lot about the things that he says, particularly at the top of this podcast, about choosing what you want to do with your life and figuring out how to get there. For Adam Leipzig, the answer was making movies. Making one movie is a miracle, and Adam has made 36. He's worked on 36. Some of them might be among your favorites, from Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, The Dead Poets Society, to March the Penguins. And he's not only worked as an executive at Nat Geo and Disney, where Jeffrey Katzenberg was his mentor, but he's also produced his own films. And after writing the book on filmmaking, which we're going to talk about in the interview coming right up, he's also trying to share what he's learned more widely through MediaU. You can check out some basically free samples of MediaU classes on our YouTube channel. There's a link in our show notes. And if you want to try a MediaU class, I recommend starting with the Marketing and Distribution Roadmap for Independent Filmmakers. If you sign up now at MediaU.com, discount code MovieMaker011123, We'll get you $100 off. Don't rewind. Don't worry. That again is in the show notes on this podcast. And since we're doing plugs, the new issue of Movie Maker is out now. You can pick it up at Sundance or Slamdance or on newsstands. Or you can visit moviemaker.com where we publish some, but not all, of the articles for free. Michael B. Jordan's on the cover for Creed 3, his directorial debut. There's a really good interview inside by Trey Williams. Um, I'm going to recommend this one. I honestly recommend them all. I, you know, run the magazine. It would be weird if I didn't recommend them all. And if there's anything you want to mention to me, just email me at tim.molloy at moviemaker.com. And now, here's Adam Leipzig, CEO and founder of Media U. Just to begin, I was just watching your TED Talk where you talk about going to your 25th reunion at Yale and finding mm-hmm. that 80% of your classmates were unhappy and finding that those who were happy tended to be those who learned for the sake of learning. Yeah. Can you talk about that? Yeah. You know, uh, class reunions are a pretty amazing sociological study because it's a consistent cohort. It's people who have all gone through the same formative years of uh, four years of college or university. Uh, Largely, they came from the same uh, cultural and socioeconomic uh, background. And uh, then to look at that slice of humanity 25 years on and say, okay, what's what's consistent? What's the same? What's different? Uh, The... The remarkable thing that I found is that uh, the people who had gone into professions for the money or because their parents told them they had to, like, I really want to be a writer, but mom and dad said I had to be a doctor, a lawyer. I had to go to Wall Street. I had to go make a lot of money. At the 25-year mark, let's call that the half-life mark, they were really unhappy. And they were saying, well, gee, like I I did this and like, what do I do now? I feel like I have spent 25 years, but I haven't really gotten a return on the investment of time. Uh, On the other hand, those of us who were, 
who studied literature, theater, language, um, things which do not have overt practical career focus actually had great careers because <laughs> we had been doing things that we loved. Um, we were not in it for the money. Uh, some of us had made money. Others of us had not made a ton of money, but everybody was doing okay. They were paying the rent. They were putting their kids through school. They were putting food on the table. They were driving cars, but we were happy because we were doing things that we liked. And that's such a, I thought that was just, just like such a, um, a moment of understanding why do we do what we do and how do we do things that are really meaningful? Because at the end of the day, uh, when, uh, when we're all gone, we don't take our money. We don't take our stuff. Uh, we take relationships. Relationships are the only thing that we really leave behind and the good work that we've done to make the way easier for other people. That's re that's really what we leave behind. And how do we amplify that? Yeah. Yeah. So how did you find your way to your career when you left Yale? <clears throat> uh, well, interesting story because it's all about coincidence. The plan was to, uh, to go into theater and I had an apartment in New York and I was gonna go to New York, get an apartment and conquer New York theater. And three days before I was supposed to go to New York, three days before uh, graduation, the apartment fell through mm. and I had no place to live. So I got on a plane and went back home to Los Angeles. Best thing that ever could have happened to me <laughs> because um, after I came back to Los Angeles, I, uh, I was living in my parents' house. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to be in theater. And at a certain point I realized that no theater was gonna call me. I had to go actually out and call them and uh, make some house calls. Uh, and there had been a theater that I had attended called the Los Angeles Actors Theater, uh, which was a fairly new theater at that time. And I really liked their work. They did interesting new plays. So I went over there and I said, do you uh, got any openings? And Diane White, uh, who unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago, uh, was the producer there. And she said, yeah, we need a stage manager. Have you ever stage managed? And I said, yes, lying that I'd stage managed. Okay. Uh, and instantly I was hired to become a stage manager of one of nine one-act plays. Uh, within a few months, I'd become the production stage manager of all nine one-act plays. Uh, within a few months, I'd become the dramaturg and was producing at the theater. And then we took this theater, uh, which was in Hollywood, and leveraged the work that we had done and the work we continue to do to build the Los Angeles Theater Center, which is a 1,200-seat, four-theater performing arts complex in downtown Los Angeles, which we opened. And if I'd been in New York, would I have been able to build and open a new theater? No. So it turned out, turned out I mean, how many times in one's life in America do you actually get to build and open a new theater? It happens so rarely. So I was... Uh, I was really fortunate to fall into that, and that—that's how I—that's uh, what I—that's what I did coming out of uh, out of college, and then at a certain point, having done that for seven years, I took a look at the audience, and I realized, well, if we have a really successful play, it's going to run for six weeks, and three thousand people are going to see it. I want to work for a larger audience. I want to work on a bigger canvas. 
And that was the point at which I decided, let's go explore the movie universe. And uh, and I moved into movies. So you weren't quite 30, I'm guessing? I was 27, 20, 28. Wow. 28. We're, we're in the 80s now, 90s? We, we're in the 80s. So how did you get into film? Uh, I knew one, at that, at that point, there had been very few people in the decades, immediately in that decade and previous decades, immediate, immediately previous decades, that had ever actually made the transition from theater into film. Um, the, the people of the studios didn't, well, first, they never went to theater, even though they poached our actors all the time. They didn't go to theater. They didn't understand theater. They they, they came out of other universes. Um, unlike the people who founded the studios 100 years ago, who had come out of theater and vaudeville and live performance. But at that time in the 70s and 80s, that's not who was running the studios. Um, so they, they they didn't understand theater and look down on it. And I and be, therefore, I didn't really have any relationships in the movie universe. I knew one person who was an agent and uh, I went to him and I said, I'm kind of interested in movies. And he said, you've got to be kidding. You're never going to succeed. Just like go do something else, (laughs) go back to school. Um, But he gave me one more name. He said, I said, can I talk to one other person? He gave me one name of somebody else to talk to. I had the same conversation with that person who told me it would never work, but gave me one other person to talk to. And I developed a, um, a, 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 a strategy for doing information interviews where I would just go in and meet people knowing there was no job on the table and not even saying I wanted the job, just saying, I kind of want to understand like, what is this movie thing? What's the geography? Who does what? How does it work? Uh, and because I had intuited that if they're, if you're looking for a job, nobody wants to talk to you. But if you ask people about themselves and what they do, and then you shut up. They love talking about themselves. And I did um, I did this on a spreadsheet and I did um, 87 information interviews in 90 days, wow. which was, which was crazy. It was a full-time job because you'd schedule it and then people would cancel. You'd have to reschedule. And I had my car, which I think at the time was, I don't know, something like a, like some, some like totally used Toyota. Um, and I was going back and forth between the Valley and the West side, the Valley and the West side, sometimes three, three or four times a day. Right. To, Cause you could never ever get these meetings scheduled. So they were geographically close because, <laughs> um, because God has a sense of humor and it just doesn't work that way. So I did 87 information interviews in 90 days. The 88th was Disney and they were hiring. And at that point, Disney was a, a, a newly remade studio. They had uh, they had not had a hit in a decade. They had not released an animated film in a decade. Uh, uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg and Michael Eisner had just been brought over from Paramount to try to breathe life into the studio, which had not made a movie that made more than a hundred million dollars ever. Uh, so there were there were, uh, and then I was hired. And it was good that I was the 88th interview because if it had been the first one, I would not have known what to say. But having having understood the geography and the nomenclature and the uh, and the acronyms and the kind of questions people ask you, I was prepared to go in and suddenly be asked all these questions. Uh, there were eight people 
in the creative group of the studio, Michael Eisner and Jeffrey Katzenberg at the top, me at the bottom, five people in between. And over the next years, uh, this these were the years of uh, Lion King and Little Mermaid and Honey, I Shrunk the Kids and Dead Poet Society, which were two of my early movies. Um, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, which was the first live action Disney movie in the longest time. We really reinvented the Disney live action brand with that movie. Uh, wow. And it was very productive. Uh, uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg never said he was my mentor, but he was my mentor. Mm. He taught me so much about work and work ethic and how do you work with creative people? Uh, how, how do you address the perpetual uh, a successive approximation of getting movies better and better and better over many iterations before you finally release them? Uh, mm. And it was a great experience. What is your title? I, I imagine you have many titles during this time, but what is your actual uh, uh Well, I started as creative executive and I ended up as senior vice president of production. Mm -hmm. So you're really dealing with all of the creatives in all of these films. I mean... I was. Any, any stories from Lion King, for example, I mean, which must have seemed like the wildest idea when they pitched it. Uh, Lion King is not a film that I personally was uh, was supervising. I didn't supervise the animated films, uh, but I was I was around while all of those things were happening and in a lot of the meetings and listening to the songs as they came in. Uh, hmm. It was it was a great time. Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. I mean, I love that movie so much. I remember seeing that at the South Bay Six Drive-in when I was a kid. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. That was um, that was one of my very very first films, and it started a uh, it started something that I've repeated, uh, which is working on a film for a first time director. At that time, this was Joe Johnston's first film. Joe had been the uh, the lead visual effects supervisor at ILM, so this was his first chance to direct. And I've had the uh, the pleasure and the privilege of either supervising or producing the first films of a number of directors since then, including the film that I just finished producing in, in Sicily for a first time director. It's something that I really, um, that I love to do. And I feel really privileged to be able to do to, uh, to provide the ecosystem for first time directors to have a good experience. Were there any others that really stand out? Other movies? First time directors or films. First, I mean, there's so you first, know, I mean, uh, the first first time directors. Um, John Turtletaub, whose first film was Three Ninjas, uh, which uh, nobody saw unless you were a twelve year old boy. In which case, you saw it about twenty times that year that it was released. Um, that ended up being the most profitable film of that year. Uh, Luke Chaquet, who directed March of the Penguins, uh, which was also the most profitable film of that year. That's a film that I did when I was at National Geographic. Um, Shereen Dabas's first film, Amrika. Uh, yeah, wow. Yeah. Just incredible. Yeah. And how many films have you produced? Is it, I said 30 or 40. Is it, am I close? Am I short? Uh, uh, I'm now up to 36. Oh. Uh, not all of them do I have the producer title. Uh, some of them I supervised or distributed, but there have been 36 films altogether that I've been hands-on involved in. Incredible. And can you talk about going over to National Geographic and what that job entailed? Yeah, at that time, um, National Geographic Society, which is a gigantic nonprofit, 
and was founded to do good in the world wanted to be in the movie business. They weren't really in the movie business and they, uh, but they had an ambition for it. So they asked me to design a strategy for how they could do that. I spent six months devising the plan and building out the strategy for them. And then when I shared that with them, they looked around and said, well, will you run the company, please? I said, you bet. I would love to. And I had a great seven-year run there. Um, the, wow. the the very first the first film that we came out of the box with uh, was a film called The Story of the Weeping Camel, which was also a first film uh, directed by Bianca Surandava and Luigi Filorni, uh, which won the DGA Award for uh, for Best Documentary Feature and a bunch of other awards. It's a really beautiful film. Uh, March of the Penguins was one of the films that we did during that tenure. Uh, a, uh, a documentary called God Grew Tired of Us, which I truly love, a really beautiful uh, documentary. Uh, uh, the Way Back, which is Peter Weir's uh, film. Uh, there's another film called The Way Back, but this is Peter Weir's The Way Back. I was, I've was i been really fortunate to work with uh, a very early film and a recent film from Peter Weir. Dead Poet Society, of course, was directed by Peter Weir, and then The Way Back was directed by the great Peter Weir. Yeah, and we had a great run at Nat Geo. I'd be super, we're getting out of order, but I'd be super remiss to not ask you have any Robin Williams interactions or any Robin Williams stories, what it was like making Dead Poets Society, which yeah, is, he, it feels like a very you movie with the idea of seizing the day and the idea of really embracing knowledge for the sake of knowledge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, um, you know, so Robin, uh, uh, there are several movies I did that Robin was in. Uh, Good Morning Vietnam is a film that I worked on, uh, which was really the film that broke him uh, into, you know, into stardom. Dead Poet Society followed that. Uh, later, uh, I was uh, working with uh, Interscope, the company that produced Jumanji. So the first Jumanji uh, had Robin in it and also uh, What Dreams May Come. Uh, so there's a certain amount of, you know, there, there, Robin was uh, either directly or sort of at, at the as part of the orbit of a number of films that I've done. And when I heard that he had passed, I was in New York at a restaurant and I just got a text and I, I just fell to the floor. I was devastated. Uh, but you know, the, the thing about Robin is that he was exactly like that. Like what you saw, he was that person. He was that fast, that quick, that smart, that funny, uh, that loving, that generous. Um, he was not. Um, he was not. He was not an actor. Some actors, there's a persona on the screen that is wholly different from what they're like in, in the off-screen, uh, so-called real-life world. Uh, Robin was exactly the same person, and he was. He was. He was hilarious uh, and generous and loving. Never had a an unkind word to say to anybody or about anybody. Wow. Yeah. Well, back to Nat Geo and okay. into what you're doing now. Um, does Nat Geo lead directly to MediaU? It leads with one bridge. And the bridge is that after I left National Geographic, the publishing company Macmillan reached out to me and asked uh, if I would write the standard textbook on filmmaking. And I said, okay, well, can I like look at the one that people are using now? They said there hasn't been one written in 20 years. I said, you've got to be kidding me. What are professors using? They said, 
Well, they're Xeroxing articles from trade magazines, we think. <laughs> so I agreed to become the, the lead author on that book. Uh, it's called Filmmaking in Action. It It is, it's out there, it's being used. I'm extremely proud of it. I think it is, uh, it starts with, I have an idea to make a movie and then it goes all the way through distribution and release. Every, every part of the process. And uh, I worked with a couple of other writers. I, I was the lead writer and really organized the, the supervision of the entire project. And I and, and I got the cooperation of the Academy, the Directors Guild, the Association of uh, the Society of Cinematographers, the Editors Guild, uh, Screen Actors Guild, Producers Guild. Every every guild and organization offered up their expertise and their experts, so we could really do a great and definitive job of encapsulating a hundred years of movie making knowledge, smarts, technique, and put it into something that is codified. I also shot uh, about 20 videos that go along with the books of um, people doing what they do and talking about how they do it. Uh, and it was, a, it was a great experience. It took forever. It was my first uh, real interaction with the academic universe. Uh, because when you write a textbook, it then goes out for academic review to various universities that might adopt it. Uh, and if you think studio notes are bad, wait till you get professor notes. Professor notes are so specific and so demanding. Um, and so we did three rounds of professor notes. At a certain point, I called my publisher and said, you know, Erica, Clint Eastwood has made and released five movies in the amount of time it's taken us to get this book out. And it's just like, it's just like ink on on pulped trees. Why does it take so long? She said, Adam, it's the process. Um, you know, so that was the process. And while I was, um, while I was writing that book, I took a three semester engagement at Chapman, a, uh, a film school here in Southern California, because I really wanted to learn how students want to learn because students are awesome at teaching you how they want to be taught. Uh, there are two big takeaways from that. One is they do not want to be lectured to. People want to do things and uh, actually have the experiences. And that that turned into the experiential parts of the book and also turned into the completely experiential approach to training and mentoring at MediaU, the company that I'm running now. Um, I also was able to really look at what, uh, what film schools that charge a lot of money do and don't do. Um, and Chapman is it's a, is a really good school. USC is a good school. AFI is good. NYU Tisch is good. There are other good schools. But if you look at the universe of film schools, of which there are about 40 in the United States that have some, uh, some quality and repute, and you look at the outcomes after that, five years after graduation, on average, less than 10% of the graduates have a job anywhere near the industry. And in some cases, less than 5% of the graduates have a job anywhere near the industry. Mm -hmm. uh, what they do have is a job driving Uber or working at Starbucks to pay off a lot of student loans. Yeah. And I look at that and said, wow, that's, that's failure. It's, it's failure. It's crushing failure for the, for the desire, the creative desire that people who went to those schools had when they first applied, when they first wanted to go to those schools. It's crushing failure for our industry because we're not really getting benefit of that talent. 
Uh, and by the way, film schools have about a 3% acceptance rate. So there's 97% of the people who didn't even go. And then when they couldn't get in, thought, well, there's never going to be a job in the media industries for me. Mm. Um, so how do we solve that crushing problem? And also, how do we broaden out the potential for people to have access to training and mentoring that's really practical, that really gets people on a pathway to jobs and careers? Because I believe that if you have talent and if you are persistent, I think persistence is probably one of the biggest attributes of successful people, uh, you should be able to pay the rent as a creative person. You know, it's like, it now, you may not be doing it with the thing that you say you want to do. Like it may not, you, you may say, I want to be a director but you can't direct movies all the time because that's just a really hard gig. But maybe you have specific skill as a, but you're, you discover by the, along the way, you're kind of an awesome production manager. Mm -hmm. Well, as a production manager, you can kind of work 52 weeks a year if you want to, if mm -hmm. you're good. So how do we, how do we show people that there are 150 different professions in the media universe and how do we create accelerated training and mentoring for them in months instead of years and for a few thousand dollars instead of hundreds of thousands of dollars, which you know is what uh, what large education institutions charge for two to four year programs, and that was the idea behind creating Media U. Yeah, yeah. You don't necessarily get the cachet that comes with you know. I went to AFI or I went to USC. There's people who will tell me they went to AFI, and I just know right away this person knows what they're doing. Um, mm -hmm. I'm going to listen to their pitch for an article for Movie Maker. Right. So how do you get that that cachet associated with Media U so that people know this person knows what they're talking about? They've been through this course. Yeah. Uh, and and again, I want to make really clear. I'm not saying anything against AFI or USC or NYU Tisch or or Chapman. Like those are those are great institutions. They produce great graduates. They produce a trickle of graduates. Not a, not a ton of people, but but and that's what they do. Um, we. Two answers to your question. First, we will get that cachet because we have to build that cachet as we, as people go through our programs and graduate and get jobs, and then people hear where they got where they got their training and mentoring, and they discover, oh, Media U, um, and uh, as as Media U grows and we get wider reach and wider adoption, that will just come more and more. But the other thing is that every time I've hired people for uh, production. I've actually never asked where they went to college. Mm -hmm. I, I, I I actually don't know where the people on my movies went to college. Mm -hmm. I've looked at their uh, at their reel or their portfolio. I've looked at their references. I talked to the people that they just worked with to make sure that they're good collaborators. What we really care about is, do you know how to do it? Will you be a good member of the team? And will you be the right creative fit for this project? And uh, if you... If you went to college or university, that's great, but that's not what's going to get you the gig. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's true. If I've seen their work, I don't care at all. And I'd actually rather they didn't go <laughs> to some exclusive expensive school because I'm sort of more impressed that they did this with their friends and by teaching themselves or through a course like Media U. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, I agree. I, and like if you as a writer uh, and, and running a magazine, you want to see a sample of their work. Can yeah, they write? Absolutely. Right. Can they write? Can they express themselves? Can they write in a vernacular that's right for movie maker? Yeah. And that's what's going to cause you to hire, to, to hire them. And you also, I mean, I'll tell you, like, just in terms of writing, 
because uh, I was a comparative literature major, uh, I had to unlearn how to write after I left college because university writing is so academic and footnote dependent. And uh, it's like, it, it's not like, you know, what I had to do is I had to learn how to write like I talk, which is sort of, right? I was telling somebody the other day, like people are really well-meaning, but especially with younger writers, you get articles sometimes that are like, you know, the best rom-com on Netflix right now within the realm of Western cinema, um, abiding by heteronormative, and I'm like, no, 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 caveat, caveat. Like we know, we know you're not a hateful person. Like we know you want to be an inclusive person, but also you need an article that somebody can just read when they want to find the best rom-com on Netflix right now. Um, right. Without a lot of academic couching and a lot of, um, you know, going through the history of romanticism and <laughs> Victorians and everything else. Mm -hmm. um, does, it, does it play? As William Goldman used to say, like, does it play? Does it um, play? Does it work? Yeah. Does yeah. it work? And when you're and when you're reading, can you read it? Can you just can you go through it? Um, that's like that's the thing. And and I always I always tell people if you write like you talk, it's going to be always it will always be grammatical. <laughs> it, right. And you, you don't have to you don't have to worry the grammar because whenever we talk, we're always grammatical and it'll just be easy. And I know that when I'm reading, if it's like someone's talking to me, I can read it easily. Yeah. Yeah. So just watching your TED talk, just talking to you now. Yeah. I can see why you're a good educator. I mean, I can see why people like talking to you. You're not sort of driving home points or anything like that. Um, it's not, it doesn't feel like I'm watching a PowerPoint. You're just like, you have a very easy manner. I hate PowerPoint, but go ahead. <laughs> Did that come naturally or is that something that you evolved through teaching? I think it's something that I evolved through producing. Uh, you know, and as uh, you know, as you may know, I also I teach at the business school at, at UC Berkeley. So I, I, I continue to to teach uh, and I enjoy educating. Uh, but I think educating is not it's not lecturing. It's uh, and I think I think good education is exactly the same thing as good producing. I For me, good producing is um, well, I'll use a I'll use a bio, a biology uh, analogy. It's about, you know, uh, it's about creating culture. Uh, you know, if you were in biology, uh, you had an agar plate and you put some drops of something on it and put it in the oven. And three days later, stuff had grown because you'd cultured some kind of a bacteria or whatever it was. Um, I think that producing and educating is creating a culture. Culture is creating the nutritive medium where people can grow and do their best work uh, as a producer. It's about making sure that there's the right resources, the right amount of time, the right amount of money, the right people to collaborate well. And then you kind of stand back and let that happen and uh, give some comments and some guiding. And uh, maybe you've done it a bunch of times before, so you have some pattern recognition. And you say, oh, don't, don't go down that road. It's a dead end. How about we go this way? And you can save people some time. And and maybe you've, you have... Uh, a vast personal library of other of cinema so you can say well when uh you know when Truffaut encountered this problem here's how we solved it and you so you can talk about those things um but that's really what you do is you just create this ecosystem where people can thrive and discover and in the education universe learning doesn't happen because someone talks to you learning happens because you do stuff and you fail and you say oh that was that didn't work let's do something else 
and you fail fast and you fail often, and then you get better and better and better. And, uh, I, and so for me, that's exactly the same process. And, uh, and it's about trusting your instincts and discovering your instincts. When you are early in your career, in any career, especially in the creative fields, your instincts are all you have. And when you're early, your instincts are not as good as they will be 10 years later. And there's nothing you can do about that except keep doing it. So your instincts keep getting better and better and better. I, I love what you said about creating a culture with media, you being largely online. Mm -hmm. It's so difficult to create a culture online and especially a supportive culture online because everyone is constantly being told to click things or watch things. And a lot of times, you know, the headline doesn't keep the promise. Um, the video doesn't keep the promise. God forbid you invest in a program and the money turns out not to be worth it. How do you create a culture of trust and nurturing and support virtually? Mm -hmm. Well, first, if you media you courses are not very expensive, and if you didn't like it, we'll give you your money back. So we'll we'll, we'll solve that we'll solve that <laughs> investment risk problem for you right away. Perfect. Um, but but um, but we we think. We believe, and also based on the programs that we've launched already, we have a really good way of doing this. It's a combination of pre-recorded video material and live discussion. And uh, so there's both live interaction and pre-recorded material. Now, that's exactly the same thing that we do in the live classroom, like when I teach at Berkeley or anywhere else. And it's called the flipped classroom model. The old classroom model was you walked in, you sat in an auditorium, probably as far, like way up the top of the row so the professor didn't see you. The professor came, stood at a podium, had uh, leather patches on, uh, you know, on the elbows, uh, read and lectured at you for an hour and a half, and you went away and you did some work. We don't even do that in universities anymore. What we do now is that content from the lecture is all done before you get to class. And in class, what we do is discuss because it's just the best use of time. This is how you actually learn. This is how people experience things. So we do exactly the same thing. We do the flipped classroom model. There, the And, and the videos that we do are not people lecturing you with leather patches on their elbows. Uh, mm -hmm. The videos are people who are actual experts talking about and doing what they do to give mm -hmm. you like visibility, uh, pulling back the curtain, give you visibility behind the scenes of what really goes on and how it's really done. Uh, and we take those videos, which I think are shot really well, and they're fun and they're engaging. Um, they're like they're mini movies. Uh, and we chunk them down into segments that are between five and 12 minutes. So you're not staring at the screen for hours and you can go away and take a break. It's all self-paced. We actually find people like to binge watch, but you don't have to binge watch. So it's really up to you. Um, and then we couple that with other elements like something that you can download and read or a podcast or other things that just make it fun and interesting. Uh, and as we grow and as we have more people in the community as members, there will be more member things that we do, uh, including as we get critical mass in different cities, live experiences as well, where we actually all interact together. Uh, at, you know, we're we're at the early stages of Media Year. We've recently launched. We've just come out with five or six programs, which are operating now. Uh, and as we as we get more and more people involved and also more university systems involved, we'll be able to have more live interactions as well. 
you also have really terrific participants and partners. Can you talk about who some of them are? Well, our, I mean, let's just start with our advisors, the people who are, who everybody I've said, would you consider being an advisor to Media U has said, yes, absolutely. I would love to be an advisor to Media U. And the advisors that we have at Media U are really, uh, like, they're really extraordinary. They're current working professionals who uh, work at or have worked at every major studio, every major streamer, um, many of the major production companies from multiple fields of the industry, also some first-class educators who are truly experienced in education. Um, we uh, we have a relationship with the University of California. So as we uh, as we build courses and we prototype them first in the Media U platform, and we know that they work, we're then able to uh, offer them through University of California, working with University of California, Irvine, Division of Continuing Education. So as we get courses and we bring them into that system, people can then, uh, will then be able to take them through U University of California and receive uh, credits and transcripts there. We're in the process of talking with a couple of other large uh, college and university systems in other parts of the country, uh, and also starting some discussions in Europe as well uh, of with other academic institutions, which will uh, validate and provide credits and transcripts as well for, uh, for MediaU material, uh, because we're solving a problem for colleges and universities. This is a high demand area. Uh, students really want to know can I have a creative career in media? And I use the word media broadly. It's like what you and I are doing right now is a kind of media, right? A podcast is media. Uh, anything that happens on a screen uh, or through some kind of mediated technology is media. So it's film, TV, streaming, TikTok, podcasts. It's all media. People who are self-expressive or just want to be supportive of those ex people who are self-expressive are kind of interested. Can I have a career in media? So this is a high demand area in uh, in education circles, it's really hard to create those programs, really hard to create those programs. And we solve that because our, our programs are able to be uh, adopted by other college and university systems that they can offer them uh, through their university platform as enhanced learning to strap onto uh, their existing programs or become a whole uh, a suite of programs themselves. And uh, that's another way that we're going to be reaching more and more people. Yeah. And just sort of the very simple version, if someone gets involved in Media U, if someone mm -hmm. wants to take courses, where do they start and what should they expect? Okay. Well, they start by going to MediaU.com and signing up. Uh, and the very first entry is just that people just sign up for our email list and people can sign up for our free breakthrough with MediaU uh, live stream, uh, which is every, we do it about every couple of weeks uh, where I host it with an expert in a field and it's free and you just kind of, kind of get on board. And uh, it's th these are 30 minute accelerated mentoring sessions. There's at least three big mentoring ideas that comes out of come out of each one of them. Uh, and so this is just a way to get introduced into the community. And then if you want to go deeper, there are short programs like a program on getting your film financed or producing or working uh, with SAG-AFTRA and getting great SAG-AFTRA actors into your independent movie, uh, which are on demand. Uh, not very expensive. They're $59. Uh, 
they're about an hour uh, with additional material that comes along with it. And you can just, those are just instant on demand. We have a uh, another program, which is a longer and a really terrific program. I think really necessary, especially as we are now in award season and festival season, um, uh, which is a marketing and distribution roadmap for independent filmmakers. This is a longer course uh, because it's a bigger subject and we are really proud of it. And it's, uh, people have already been into it, uh, have found great results from it. In this marketing and distribution roadmap, uh, which you probably want to devote a few weeks with your team uh, to do it. And we actually have a, um, we have a package where you, you and two other team members can come on board together and do this together as a team, because if you're going to get your movie marketed or distributed, whether you're with uh, a traditional distributor like A24 or you end up doing it yourself, you can't do it all yourself, just like you couldn't make your movie yourself. It's a it's a whole it's a process and you need several hands uh, guiding the entire process. But you will uh, uh, you will be trained by people who have marketed and distributed several hundred independent movies with an exact process of how to do it. And you will come out of it with a very specific roadmap of what to do. Like do this first, do this next, do that next, do that next to get to distribution, whether you do it yourself, which is increasingly an option, uh, both for uh, both for practical reasons and also sometimes for financial reasons. Because if, uh, you know, if a streamer is gonna offer you $1,000 to distribute your movie for the next five years, maybe you'd really rather do it yourself uh, and have more control and actually make more money. Um, but also, if you are fortunate enough to have a large distributor come on board, you can be savvy in the meetings and you can be really helpful. And that's what they're looking for. They're looking, all distributors are looking for filmmakers to be partners and to bring along their audience and to come with marketing materials as part of the film package. It's not just your metadata that they want. They want to know, do you have an audience? Do you have a trailer? Do you have a one sheet? Do you have an approach? Do you have a way to get the audience? Even if they end up recutting your trailer and changing the one sheet, the fact that you have it and it helped press kit and you have your press stills and you've got all the whole package, all the whole thing in the kit, uh, which we detail in this, uh, in this program, that's often what makes the distributors say, yeah, we can work with them and we have a shot at really reaching the audience with this film and with these filmmakers. Because when you finished your movie, sorry, you're only half done. <laughs> now you've got to go get it in front of audiences and sell it. Uh, and this course is the guide so people can do that. I go to so many film festivals and sit through so many really good talks and run so many articles and talk to so many filmmakers. And some of the stuff that you've just said is so completely on point, especially about you know having great stills, having that good image that you're going to use to sell the thing. If you can't, it's like having a, not having a log line for your terrific script, right. that title on your terrific script. I mean, you really have to think of the photos, the marketing, the trailer, all of it as just evidence of your ability as a storyteller. And it's not the film. It's not like, no, 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 I know the trailer is bad, but the film is great. Like you really have to just be a consummate storyteller from beginning to end, even in just your email saying, will you look at my press release? Exactly. I mean, when, when you think about, uh, us as audience members and we're scrolling like we're, we're saying, well, I want to watch something. And I actually find that Netflix and Amazon's a suggestion of what I want to watch is really generally terrible. So mm -hmm. I'm scrolling through what do, I, what do I want to watch? What do, what do I make a decision on? There's one image, there's one title, 
And then there's maybe 120 characters, which then they don't, the sentence doesn't finish. It goes dot, 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 because the paragraph was too long. Uh, right. So that's what, that's what distributors are looking for. Am I going to be able to put this up with a one great image, a great title? Titles are so important, right? Um, people sometimes don't have great titles, uh, but great titles make a huge difference. And is there a log line or some description, something that's going to make people click and say yes? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Is there anything I should have asked that I didn't get into? Um, I feel like we've covered a lot of ground and I have some sort of more philosophical questions if we're... Let, let's go to philosophy. <laughs> well, the first thing I think is the time that you were coming up in Disney, I mean, this is like a legendary period. I believe this is mm -hmm. also like bonfire of the vanities period um, with, was that Touchstone, I believe? Maybe. Um, I don't think so. Maybe not. Okay. But there's a lot of drama going on in the film room, film world at that time. And it seems like a very cutthroat time. Do you feel that you made it through that time sort of undamaged? Um, because it, I, I imagine that time, I imagine, and I have no basis of this except for, you know, reading second and third hand stories. I imagine mm -hmm. Jeffrey Katzenberg being incredibly stressful and scary. Uh He's, he was, there's a difference between being demanding and difficult, mm -hmm. right? So I, I, you know, I worked on Julie Tamor's first film. It's another movie that I did uh, with the first time director. Julie, wow. you know, Julie is demanding. She's not difficult. Mm -hmm. She's, she knows what she wants. Mm -hmm. She demands it. Bless her for doing that. I'd rather work with a director who knows what they want. than director says, well, gee, I don't know. That's impossible as a producer. Jeffrey Katzenberg knows what he wants. He's very demanding. But he's not difficult. He's not unreasonable. He's completely logical. He has a philosophy of the business. His instincts are, you know, at least at that time, were really, really good. Um, and we learned a lot from them. Uh, uh, yes, we did get in as early as possible, discovered that Jeffrey's Mustang was already on the lot, <laughs> put our hand on the hood to see if it was still warm and no, it was never still warm because he'd been there two hours before us. Uh, so that taught me something about work ethic and how, and what you have to do to be in the business. Um, but, uh, but it wasn't, but it was not, it was not awful. Um, I, I feel as though I came through it undamaged, but really savvier mm -hmm. understanding that, uh, it can be cutthroat and the knives can be out and you have to look behind you as well as in front of you. Uh, and uh, yeah, I've been kneecapped a few times mm -hmm. and then I got back up. Mm -hmm. So, but, I, but it, it does give me, it gave me a lot of pattern recognition, uh, a lot of understanding that people uh, clearly do not always tell you the truth. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you have to be mindful of that and you have to assess things yourself. Do you find that the people who kneecapped you or who did you wrong in some way, were they doing it because they were so good or were they doing it out of some weakness and inability to do it the right way? Oh, they were just doing it out of pure naked ambition or yeah. greed. Yeah. Do you think the industry is nicer now? I mean, it seems like it's more polite now. Maybe it's more polite on the surface. I don't know that it's really more polite uh, behind closed doors. The big difference is the media is corporate now. Mm -hmm. 
You know, every every studio, every movie division at that time was a big company, and now movie divisions, movie studios are uh, are almost rounding errors in the portfolio of the multinationals that uh, that control the companies. So the it's just become a really really different company. If you were to start a company right now and you said I have a billion dollars to start a studio, people would say, well, "That's not enough. <laughs> you can't do that." <laughs> Matt Damon and Ben Affleck just started that project with $100 million in startup money. And I was so impressed. I was like, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> you, know how fast that, you know how fast that goes? That's the marketing budget of, of one. That's not even the marketing budget of one big uh, uh, Marvel movie. Right. That's like one-tenth of an avatar. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh. Uh, the other thing I wanted to ask is this TED Talk where you talked about being happy. Mm-hmm. Have you remained happy? And what has kept you happy? I mean... Obviously, relationships are a big part of it. Mm. And obviously, the fact that you've gotten not just a lot of things made, but you've had a huge number. I mean, you know, 36 films. If most people made one successful film, they would be, I think, very happy. Or maybe not. Maybe part of this creative drive is that you're never satisfied. Mm. I I guess I'm just asking, do you think a lot of your happiness derives from success? Do you think you would be as happy if people just didn't have the same vision? But Tim... Tim, I've had so much failure, right? Like I, I made, I've gotten 36 movies made because I tried to make 360 <laughs> and, and, and I failed 90% of the time. Babe Ruth, who had a crappy batting average, had a better batting average than I have, right? right. But I'm very persistent and I just keep going. Uh, my, and, uh, and yes, my happiness is based on my success, but it's not the success as reported in Daily Variety. And it's not the success in, uh, in my bank account. And it's not in the success of what kind of car I drive. Uh, it's a Subaru, by the way. Um, it's it, it's it's um, it's success in feeling good about who I'm working with and what I'm working on. And of course, I want millions of people to see the work. And of course, I want me and everybody else involved to 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 make uh, a good living from it. But uh, it's really about the quality of the relationships and. Uh, you know, early in my career, I got movies made because I could. I've now learned just because you can get a movie made doesn't mean you should make it. Mm. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. Should mm. you? It's going to be a couple years of your life. Is it something you really love? Is it something that there will really be an audience for? And do you really love the people that you're working with? If the answer to those three is yes, then it's a good thing to do. I feel the same way about Media U, something that I love love doing. I love the people I'm doing it with. I really believe in serving the vast constituency of people who seek creative careers across the spectrum and don't have access, understanding to training and mentoring. Uh, and I love what it's doing. And I love the partnerships that we're develop- that we're developing. Yeah, I really, really feel what you're saying about getting people out of the trap of spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on a career that they may not be able to pursue, because that just seems like such a recipe for misery. Obviously, if it works, a lot of great people come out of film schools. They do amazing, mm-hmm. they make amazing connections that they keep using throughout their entire career. Um, but the idea of being trapped in some job that you don't like to pay for the education that you don't get to use just sounds, that is a recipe for unhappiness. Yeah. I so. think happiness is good. How do, how do we create more happiness in the world? The world sure needs it right now. <laughs>